Revelation chapter 19, we've gone through chapter 17, the destruction of ecclesiastical Babylon, which I believe takes place at the midpoint of the tribulation period when the Antichrist goes into the temple, declares himself God, and, and then begins to persecute the worldwide religion because uh, they worship other gods and he wants them to worship him. And then chapter 18, we see the uh, destruction of the economic and philosophical, uh, all the political structure of the world systems that have been against God. You remember in Psalm chapter 2, um, you, or the second Psalm, that you read that all the nations gather together against God, and God laughs in derision. Well, well, that laughter comes about manifest in his action uh, in chapter 19. Chapter 18 is the destruction of, of, of the Babylonian systems and uh, all the world systems that are anti-God, and which basically is going to be the whole world, and with, with Christians sprinkled within that, and, but no, not nations. And, and then chapter 19 is the second coming uh, of Christ. And so it's really, really interesting. This, we're, we're to the good part. So read with me, if you would, um, 19, verse 1 through 6. After these things, so after the destruction of the tribulation period, we're right to the end of it. It hasn't completely finished, but we're right to the end of it. After these things, John said, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. That means blasphemy, uh, blasphemy religion. Um, Corrupted the earth, her fornication. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And false religion has always persecuted Christianity. And then verse 3, again they say, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. What a tremendous time that the saints in heaven, Old Testament saints, the martyred saints during the tribulation time, the rejoicing now that they, these world systems that have been out of Christ are, are destroyed, and they're, they're rejoicing about that. When, when, we, when we see injustice, we should, we, we should desire God's name and his glory to be vindicated. Not ours, but his. Um, if you pray for your own vindication, then you're, you may be selfish in that. But if you're praying for God's vindication, then that is prayer that he's going to answer one day. When we've gone through the book of Revelation, we've seen that two different occasions, that the prayers of the saints for this very thing to happen 
is poured out upon the altar. So your prayers today for God to be glorified in our society. See, again, there may be things we don't like. Donnie mentioned Democrats. Well, I didn't tell him I'm a Democrat. (laughs) So, you know, one of the things that one of the things that happens is that we, we want things our way. We want things in our world the way we think they should be. And that's not, that's not always godly. That's not always honoring to God. We should want things in our world the way that the Bible teaches us that God wants things. And when we pray toward that end, God answers those prayers and uses those prayers. And so now there's rejoicing in heaven. And it, it is a great all a great rejoicing. Here's what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said, heaven is always heaven and unspeakably full of blessedness. But even heaven has its holidays. Even every bless has its overflowings. And on that day when the springtide of the infinite ocean of joy shall have come, what a measureless flood of delight shall overflow the souls of the glorified saints. And then he said this, We do not know yet, beloved, of what happiness we are capable. So we don't, I agree with that. We do not fully realize what, what capacity we will have at one point in time to glorify God for what he's done. See, today we question him. We question, you know, why do you allow these things? Why do you allow things politically, economically, socially, why do you allow these things that are dishonoring to you and demeaning to us and destructive maybe for our families and for persecuting of of Christians? Why why do you allow these things? And one day we will see clearly that that God is glorified in all those things. He's glorified in his plan and it will be unspeakable joy. We will be rejoicing in, in this same manner. And then we read of the marriage of the Lamb. So the marriage of the Lamb takes place during the seven-year tribulation. And here, John is reflecting. John, John sees this. And it doesn't mean it's happening at the end of the tribulation, but I think it's happening during the tribulation time. So the marriage of the Lamb. This is the, this is the joining of Christ with his bride and the, the church. Those saved from Pentecost until the rapture. So read with me verse 7 and 8. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. When you go through the Old Testament, you see that Israel is the wife of God. And Israel is often... Uh, seen as adulterous because she goes after other gods. And Israel did that. You read through Kings and Chronicles, uh, 1 Samuel, and, and you see that Israel got involved in idolatry to the place that God finally took them out of the land under uh, first, the, first the northern kingdom of Israel, then the southern kingdom of Judah. And, and when the when the Babylonians came and, and destroyed Jerusalem and took, it, took Judah, uh, Israel is already in captivity. When they took Judah, then began, then began the time of the Gentiles. And so God did that as a judgment against the nation of Israel because of their harlotry or idolatry. And again, we've already talked in here about that 
adultery in the Bible has to do with, adultery toward God has to do with idolatry. It's that you're, you're not being faithful to your creator. For the Old Testament, it was Israel not being faithful to her husband, God. And in the New Testament, it is the bride of Christ not being faithful to the bridegroom. It is we who are not faithful, but we who devil in idolatry and are not faithful to Christ. But so during this time, there is this marriage is that we are going to be, you know, and sometimes this is hard to grasp because we're, we're thinking about, okay, we're, we're, we're diverse people. Uh, Paul says there's neither uh, bond or free. Uh, it's not racial, uh, we're Jew or Gentile, it's rich or poor, but we're one in Christ. We're all the same. We're the body of Christ. Corinthians talks about, Paul talks about there that, you know, you, you may be a different part, the hand or your foot or the eye or the ear, but we all make up the body of Christ. And so this, this diverse people, everyone who's saved, everyone who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit makes up the body of Christ, and then one day we're going to be forever joined to him during this marriage. And, and this has the same procedural thing in a Jewish marriage. What happened in a Jewish marriage? They would be, I better look at my notes so I get it right. There, there would be the, um, when you're betrothed. I got that right? Betrothed. <laughs> I've always got that right. I think that's wrong. I think she's wrong and I'm right. When you're betrothed, means that you've asked someone to marry you and you made a commitment and, and, and Jewish people could do that. They could do that as early as, you know, six months old. And so you made a commitment that these are going to be married. What happens in the Christian church is that for us in Christ, that happens when the Holy Spirit comes and renews us and redeems us then we belong to Christ after that. We're, the Holy Spirit is the seal of our redemption. And so it may have happened to you at six years of age or 60 years of age, and, uh, and so you belong to Christ. But you haven't been joined to him yet. You're still living in a body cursed by sin. And so what happens next is that there is this, this we're going through this preparation time awaiting the maturity of the bride, and the preparation of the groom to receive the bride. And we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. So that's what we're, we're waiting for, the fulfillment of Christ's promises to us. The third phase is the completion of that. It is when the bridegroom goes to get the bride and consummates the marriage, and then they have the celebration. For us, it is the rapture, if we're still still alive, or whether we've already died in this, in this life, the rapture, and we come into the presence of Christ with uh, and, and we'll forever be with him. And so that is the consummation. of, uh, And then after that is the celebration. And in that marriage supper, if you read through Corinthians, <coughs> excuse me, you're going to see, in 2 Corinthians, you're going to see that one of the things that happens to us when, when this bride we read is prepared and has clean linen, verse 8, and to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Okay, so what is that preparation? What is this righteous acts of the saints? We know that Paul teaches us and the Bible teaches us that when we come to believe in Christ, 
Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. So every one of us in this room this morning who know Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us. Not because we deserve it, not because we're worthy of it, but simply because we believed in Christ. We believed in his death and burial and resurrection, paying the penalty of our sin, and Christ's righteousness then is imputed to us. Which means when we stand before God, or Christ, when we stand before Christ at this time of this marriage supper, and, and Corinthians talks about it like this, to Christians, now not to the world, but to Christians, that our works are going to be evaluated. I could say judged, but I like the word evaluated better. Our works are going to be evaluated, and what is wood, hay, and stubble is going to be burned, and what is precious stones and, and, and gold and silver and precious stones, that's going to be rewarded. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to be very careful about what I say so that you understand. So what is the dividing line of that? How do we know what's wood, hay, stubble that's going to be burned and we will not be rewarded for? And then what will we be rewarded for that is gold and silver and precious stones as Paul taught in Corinthians? Well, the righteous acts of the saints. So it's not talking about imputed righteousness because everyone who knows Christ is going to heaven. But after that, it is after you become a Christian, your acts are going to be evaluated for how they honor the Lord. Not the, and, and this is what I want you to grab, not, it's not the quantity of what you accomplish for Christ. But it is, I should say, the, the, the quality. It is your, it is your character. I, I'm going to do, do a funeral service on Tuesday for a lady from our church. And I was thinking about, I have used before Proverbs 31. In fact, I remember using it. The only person I think I've used it for, if I remember correctly, is Opal Dunn. And I thought Opal Dunn fit those qualifications. But you know, I was thinking about it. And when you think about Proverbs 31... And this woman had high privilege. When you read through that, this woman had land and servants, and she had goods, she had um, industry that was available to her, and, and sometimes we focus on that. When we're thinking about, when I stand in judgment, then what have I significantly accomplished? And, and this, the Bible doesn't teach that. And when you were reading about the woman in Proverbs 31, you know, she had what we would call in the world an exalted position. She was gifted with a position. And you know what? All of us don't have the same position. I already mentioned that Paul said that in the body of Christ, some are a hand, some are an eye, some are, some are the foot, and we don't all have, we're not all exalted the same. You, you have been given a position in this world, in, the, in your body, and all of our positions are not the same. That is not concerning to God at all. The Apostle Paul himself said that, that he, he, he lived within the limits, let me get the word that he used, of the spear, of the spear which God had appointed him. He said that in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 17. Paul, Paul, I think, was the greatest Christian ever. He lived within the spear that God had appointed him. And he said it was the limit of the spear. 
He couldn't do all that he wanted. He couldn't go anywhere he wanted. He couldn't accomplish all that he wanted. You know, we hear all this time, you tell your children, you could be anything you want to be, you could do anything you want to do. Well, that's not biblical. You're going to be anything you want to be and do anything you want to do within the plan of God for your life. Now, if you add that, it's okay. That's biblical. But I have been assigned a position. You have been assigned a position in this world. It doesn't make you more significant or insignificant of anybody else in this world. I wished I had learned that when I was about 15, don't you? I wished I had been able to learn that, accept that, and go through my life without feeling inferior or without feeling superior. Okay? Charlie Brown said he wanted to join that club where there are no big people, no little people. And that's, that's, what I, that's how I would like to live, where I don't feel either one of those things. And if you understand biblically who you are in Christ, you should do that. I should do that. And even, even amazing, you come to the end of your life and you realize that theologically, and it's still a struggle, isn't it? It's still a struggle. I was thinking this morning as I was studying, I was thinking, I, I have been intimidated by very many people in my life. Uh, I have been intimidated by some, <laughs> but it hasn't been the banker, and if you're a banker, I'm sorry, I'm not talking about you. It, ha- it, has, it hasn't been the people in authority. The people who intimidate me are the people who are humble in Christ because it shows up my shortcomings. It, it makes me feel them and, and humbles me. When, and there, there have been people in our church over the years who have fit that criteria, and I just, I, I, I want to say I'm almost, I'm almost uncomfortable around them. I want, I want to be around them, but I'm almost uncomfortable around them because it shows up my, my shortcomings. But your, your linen is going to be conditioned upon your righteous acts as we go through this life. You're, there's going to be, there's going to be, Degrees of, and, and, and I, there's, there's going to be degrees of reward in heaven throughout eternity. And, and I, can't, I can't adequately describe what's in my mind about those degrees. See, this, this teaches that. This is the righteous acts of the saints. Okay, and the acts of the saints. Well, that, that woman in Proverbs 31. You know, if we read that, what we shouldn't focus on is her position, but her character and her faith. And see, it doesn't matter what our position is. We can have character and faith. And, and that's what God rewards. That's what he blesses. This is going to be a blessed time as, as we go through that. I, you know, it, it's like bittersweet. I'm looking forward to being with Christ. I'm not looking forward to that evaluation and see many of my works burned up. So we come to, um, we come now after that's taken place, we're going to come to what's going to happen in heaven. Verse 9, then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the guests. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you don't do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And in my notes uh, that I'm going to send to you this week, I emphasize that. I think that is so significant. 
you know, there have been things that, there, that just stand out. This, this doesn't further the action, but this tells why there is action. I want you to look again at the last phrase of that. Verse 10 says, Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You know what that literally means? It means that all prophecy from the beginning of the word of God, it is all about Jesus. It is the testimony of Jesus. When, when, the, when the serpent beguiled Eve and Adam and, and they sinned, and God said at the beginning of the Bible that your offspring will bruise his head. He will bruise your heel, but bruise it. That is the testimony about Jesus. And you go through all the Bible. Now, not on every page and not in every paragraph, but every book is about the coming of Christ. Every book is about the preparation of the coming of Christ. All the New Testament is about Christ having come and, and then about him coming again. Every, everything in the Bible is about Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And this is what is testified to here, that the spirit of prophecy, uh, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You know, we use the Bible for a lot of things. You, you can listen to Christian radio, you can listen to people speak, and they use the Bible for therapeutic means, and I'm not against that. They use the Bible for, you know, how to have a better marriage, you know, how to raise your kids, you know, and all those things are there. I, I think they're there. But in the end, it is about Christ. And how do I have a better marriage? How do I know better to raise my kids? How do I know better to be a part of society? It is because I love Christ, and Christ is my model. See, if I just try to do it in my own strength because I want a better life. I don't know about you, when I came, one of the reasons that led us to the church and to be saved is that we were unhappy. We were not satisfied with life. I thought Donna was at fault, and she thought I was at fault. And, the, and you know what the answer to that is? Yes. And it's true. Both of us were. And we, were, when we, we wanted something, and we didn't know that it is Christ. We wanted a better marriage. We wanted a better life. We, we wanted what we didn't experience growing up in our own families. We wanted something more. That, that wasn't, it wasn't something we said, okay, that we got together and said, how do we do that? I just wanted her to fix it. I, and she wanted me to fix it. And we didn't realize that the only fix there is, is that it's Jesus and his redemption of our soul and the forgiveness of our sin and the renewing of his spirit within us. And that fixes it. So when, when, you, when you read this, that, that is so important. Don't, don't, don't miss that statement. I think I mentioned to you, I think last week we talked about the fact that when it talks about Jesus, see, that's his humanity. The, testi- the testimony of Christ, I mean, it doesn't say that, excuse me, it doesn't say the testimony of Christ. It says the testimony of Jesus. That, that's the name of his humanity. Okay, the Bible uses the word Christ a lot, and, and Christ is Messiah. Christ, Christ, then Hebrew, and Christ is Greek. And so Messiah means he's Lord. He's the Savior, He's Lord, and He is all of that. But when it talks about here the testimony of Christ, it's talking about what He did in His flesh, in His humanity. And what was that? He, he, He had a virgin birth, He taught, He suffered, He lived, He died, He was resurrected, and He did that for you and for me. And so in His humanity, so the Bible is about 
the work of Christ and salvation, the work of Jesus and salvation. Isn't that amazing? That should stir our heart and be, make us so grateful for what Christ, what God was willing to do for us, and Jesus did it in his humanity. I'm one of the people that believe that when we go to heaven, we will see the glory of God the Father. We saw that in, I can't remember what chapter, but early in the chapter, chapter 5, I think, in the throne room of God, we saw, or chapter 4 maybe, but we saw the glory of the Father like a sapphire, and almost like description, but we're going to see Jesus in his humanity. Jesus is going to have a human form, uh, now a, a body like we have, that's what he had as he was resurrected, I think he's going to have it throughout all, all eternity. We're going to see Jesus in his human form. Now he's God, and he will be God, and he is God, and he will, that will not change, but we will see him in his human form. When we see the nail prints in his wrist or palms or wherever they happen to be, and we will be grateful. We will worship because of what he did for us. We will always remember that we were sinners and Christ redeemed us, that Jesus gave himself for us. I think that probably as we read through this, one of the most significant things that we should take away from, from this. And now we come to the coming of Christ, uh, which sometimes we think that's the most important thing in this, in this book. But verse 11 Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like the flame of fire, and and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. Let me see how far I want to read. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him with white horses. We've already seen that. That's us. That's we, the raptured church, are the armies of heaven following him, and, and also probably the Old Testament saints. We're coming, and we're part of his army, clothed in our righteous acts uh, that we're in the white linen, we're, we're coming with him, compare that white linen with all the tapestry of the harlot, all the regalness on earth of the of the purple and all those things. But the white linen shows its purity. Many brides get married with with white because they want to show purity. So we're we're coming with him. When we read this, we can't imagine what seeing Christ is going to be like in his, in his glory. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and verse 12, and his head were many crowns. He is, he's the king of the world. He's the king of all nationalities. He's the king of, of all of the created order, not just humanity. He's the king of the angelic host. He, he is the king of of, of a cherubim. He is the king of all the angels. He's the king of everything. And so he has these crowns. And there's a victor's crown. There is a, a ruling crown. There's just all, all of these crowns that he has. Say, so how could people wear more than one crown? I don't know. But, but, he, but we see that. And he has a name written that no one knew except himself. When we read through the, we didn't go, we didn't go through in this study 
chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation because Will Hobbs had already taught it on a Wednesday night and taught it for like 12 weeks or something like that, very thorough. And so I told you we weren't going to go through it. You could listen to it online if you wanted to. But in that, we saw that when, when, when we come to salvation, and the Lord said to the different churches that, I'll give you a, I'm going to give you a stone that has your name on it. And it's not a name known to anyone. You know what that means? And here we, we don't know the full name of Christ. We don't know the full name of Jesus. We, we can't. And, and what that means is that, I think, what that means is that we can't comprehend fully all that we will be in eternity. When, when we're redeemed, we can't comprehend today all that we will experience, all that we will enjoy, all that we will. You know, we have this finite minds and we think about, okay, heaven, if we're just sitting around in heaven and not doing anything, it might just be a little boring. You know, if you play golf and you make a hole in one ever hole, it might just be a little boring. It won't be challenging. Life may not be challenging. If you're not going to be married in heaven, then you're going to miss out on that. And if, you, if your children are not necessarily just your children when you're in heaven, you're going to miss out on that. And you, you think, well, I don't, I don't like that. When I first heard that, that Don and I were going to be married, we were still a young married couple, you know, just got saved, kind of had a passion, you know, and think, well, I don't like that. <laughs> That's sex out, you don't have sex in heaven if you hadn't grasped that yet, what I'm talking about. So, you know, when you're, so, so you're thinking about, you hadn't been thinking about that, have you? So when you think about that, you, you think, I, I don't like, but, but, but you understand heaven is greater than that. We don't have the capacity to understand. Heaven is greater than that. He, heaven is, heaven surpasses that. When I taught children in here, we had, we used to have, children's church in this room and we had a, a set you know we call it Caraway Street and, and when we teach, teach children that you know if, if, you, if I gave you a little Hershey's kiss and, and, and I, then I ask you to give it back to me how many of you want to give it back to me only the pious would raise their hand only the you know the preacher's kid would raise their hand and they were lying and they would you know nobody wanted to give it back but if I could say, if you give this back, I give you the room full. We would say, okay, I'll do that. I'll give it back. You know, I won't miss it. I won't miss it when it's gone. Okay, that's what heaven's going to be like for us. When we are clothed in white linen and we're with Christ, heaven, and, and, and that's what I think Spurgeon said, that we don't have the capacity to understand what the joy will be that we will experience throughout eternity. It will be infinite because we are created in the image of God and He's an infinite God. So our joy in heaven is going to be infinite. That makes me want to go. Then you it makes me want to participate in that. It makes me long for that to take place because my joy today is not anywhere near infinite. So this is Christ coming. He's coming. Verse 14, the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So he is coming. And then um, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, when he was talking to his disciples, he, he said this. He said, the world would see the Son of Man. He said, the world will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven 
with power and great glory. Coming with power and great glory. What a magnificent sight. We're going to see that with him, and the world's going to see it. Now, they're going to see it on national television. I think they're going to see it visually with their own sight. You say, well, how can that happen? I, you remember at one point in time, and as we're going through Revelation, there's this great earthquake, and the mountains are leveled, and, and you know, and so I, I think, you know, God can take the world that's round and make it flat, and, and he, can, he can do that if he wants to. And anyway, however he does this, every eye is going to see him. I, I think they're not going to see it on television. I think they're going to see him. This is my opinion. I think they're going to see him. This is what he says. <laughs> when you see him, every eye is going to, going to see him when he comes. And who, who is he? He's the king of creation. He's the manifestation of the word of God, the logos, the expression of God, the expression of God in human flesh. And then what happens to the people who see them? And we read about the judgment. Verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he shall strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. What a, what a tremendous thing. I want to read you what John Phillips says. Now, John Phillips, commentator, and, and wrote a long time ago, and John Phillips said that this is imagination. This is imagination. And so I want you to remember that. And he, his imagination is, is that the nations are gathered at Armageddon, uh, the Valley of Megiddo, outside of Jerusalem, and, and they've come together to fight over Jerusalem and fight Against Jerusalem, they come together, but now that Christ is coming, he said that this is what he imagines. And so he has the Antichrist speaking, and this is what the Antichrist says to the leaders of the assembled armies. He said, gentlemen, we're at war and have been at war one with another, but the time has come for us to unite in a common cause. The things which unite us now are far more important than the things which divide us, It's no longer a question of which of us will rule the world. It is a question of common survival. The time has come for us to take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He has put himself in our power. He has dared to appear on earth. The last time he came, we crucified him, and this time we will cast his bands asunder and cast away his cords from us forever." We have tried uniting for peace. It has not proved a durable bond. Now let us unite for war. Let us deal with the invasion of our planet once and for all. Let us deal with this invasion of white robe psalm singers. I like that. Let us show them how men freed of all religious opates can fight. Let us hurl our defense in their teeth. Time and time again, I have given you proofs of my mighty and supernatural power. The dread Lord of darkness whom we serve has defied these heavenly hosts for countless ages and is more than a match for them all. Come, let us rid the world and its atmosphere forever of these unwanted chanters of hymns. The nations unite, as Psalm 2 foretells, yet at the great conference of kings, 
as the great conference of kings disbands and the heralds proclaim the new resolutions, peal after peal of mocking laughter sound down from heaven. Psalm 2, he that setteth in the heavens shall laugh, for he shall have them in derision. And all of these assembled armies are there, all the leadership of the world, the Antichrist who has beguiled the, the nations and brought them together are going to see Christ coming in his glory and the armies of heaven. What a tremendous thing. And now what kind of battle will it be? Verse 15, and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword and with it he shall strike the nations and he himself will rule them. It's not going to really be a battle. It's just going to be the word of God. The word of God destroys them. And we'll read a description of what I think that's like, where men, their eyes melt, their, 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 their people, the, the word of God. You know, we're talking about, you say that that would be nuclear power. You know, back for our generation, when that came into being, we would say, well, that's a nuclear explosion where your flesh just melts off your frame. Well, that's the word of God. God doesn't need the nuclear explosion to do that. He does that with his word. And, and, and you, the, the rebellious people are just going to be, there's not going to be a battle. There's not going to be a single person following Christ who gets hurt. I don't think there's going to be a single person following Christ whose, whose white linen even gets soiled. Christ has already done that. On his vesture is, is the blood. So we're, okay, verse 14. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Christ treads that winepress, and he does it with his word. And he has on his robe and on his thigh, verse 16, a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. I mean, you saw the movie, Hitchcock's movie, The Birds. You remember that? That's our generation movie. Our kids, hadn't, our kids haven't seen that movie. And uh, every now and then, you know, you go down, um, you, you go down Midkiff, and you get down around H-E-B in the evening time, and all those birds are on the high lines. Are you familiar with that? Don't park under them. But all those birds are on the high line. And, you know, and I always, think of the, I always think of that movie when I see that. I always think of those birds. When I read this passage, I think of that movie. And, you know, back when we saw that movie for the first time, it was scary, wasn't it? You know, every now and then, you know, if you have trees, there will be a scissor tail that will have a... And those scissor tails will, will bomb you. I mean, they will dive at you, and if you're not careful, they'll peck you on the head to get you away from their nest. And I always think about it when I see that gathering of birds down on Mickey, and I see, and I read this, and I remember that movie, and I remember the, the frightening thing. I think before Christ actually appears, the birds are going to be gathered. They're going to be coming from around the world. If you've ever watched on the History Channel, and if you ever watched the migration of birds and you just see them, you know, it's just amazing. It's just astounding. And they're going to come from the, all around the world, and they're going to already be gathering 
Because when Christ destroys them, the birds are going to be there. And it's going to be, I just think it's going to be an exciting time. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that. We're going to see all those birds and not be frightened about them at, at all. So, uh, where are we? And, uh, okay, told them in verse 18, come and eat the flesh of kings. And one of the things you read there at the end of that, eat the flesh of kings, mighty men, the flesh of horses, those who sit on them. And the flesh, listen to this, of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Judgment is without discrimination. You know, today, nothing in our world is without discrimination. Is that true? Nothing in our world. We are people who discriminate between other people, races, um, authority. We discriminate about wealth. We, we, we see that. Now, I'm not saying it bothers us, but we see that all the time. And in judgment, nothing is going to be discriminated. Every, it, your money won't save you. I mean, their money won't save them. Their position won't save them. They will be destroyed. And then we read... The, the end of it. In verse 20. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So two-thirds of the false trinity at that point in time is cast into the lake of fire, uh, burning with brimstone. That's hell. In verse 21, And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's why I say to you, it's not going to be a battle. It's going to be the word of God. That's the sword proceeding from the mouth uh, of Christ, the word of God that's going to destroy them. Now, when we come to chapter 20, and at the beginning of it, we're, we're going to see the capture of, of Satan himself and him being bound for a thousand years. So the false trinities put out a business. The, the, the beast and, and the false prophet will never reappear on the scene, but we're going to find out that for a thousand years, Satan is bound, and there'll be the millennial kingdom. When we read through this, there's so much happening, and it's the fulfillment of all prophecy, the word of God, and the glory of Christ, all leading to the millennial kingdom, this thousand-year reign that all of history will know that Jesus is who he said he was, that Jesus is God in the flesh, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Savior. And all of the world, all of history will know, everyone in hell through all, all, even though years ago, regardless of what nation, everyone will know that Jesus was who he said he was, and he will prove it in this thousand-year reign. I think this thousand-year reign, we'll talk about it more next week, Lord willing, but I think this thousand-year reign does more than that. It shows the world that had you, had you lived for Christ, had you made him supreme in your life, had you humbled yourself before, this is how life works. This is how the world would have worked. We wouldn't be worried about wildfires. We wouldn't be worried about floods. We wouldn't be worried about political situations. We wouldn't be worried about those things because Christ rules and he is a benevolent God and he makes the world work as it's intended to. 
I, I, I believe, and I'll say this again to you next week, but I want to give you a preview. I believe that in this millennial kingdom, there's going to be great prosperity like the world has never known. I, I mean, the, the, you, you can drive from here to probably all, all the way to Las Cruces, and all you see is basically southwest desert. But, you know, it's going to bloom. It's going to bloom, and all that will bring forth crops. There will be millions of people who live between here and there. there. And you say, if you've been that way, you think, I can't imagine that. But you, you go down toward Alpine. There's going, to be mil- there's going to be millions of people who live between here and the border. There's going to be millions of people. Mexico is not going to have an economic problem anymore. Uh, Cuba is not going to have an economic problem anymore. The world is going to prosper. And the world is going to live in peace because Christ is going to rule with a rod of iron. He is going to make life work. And all the world will see that had we humbled ourselves, had we acknowledged him, had we let him be king in our lives and, and king in our society, life would have worked. This is God. He is true he is right. He deserves to be worshipped. Wow. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, thank you that you have given us a position, Lord, to serve you. You have put us where you want us and made us what you desire for us to be in your economy. Let us live to your glory, Lord, whatever our position, whatever our place. Uh, let us not be resentful or proud. But Lord, let us just simply serve you. Let us honor you with all that we are in the time that we have before you come again. That your name be exalted. In your name we pray. Amen.